0: Can you remember some of your earliest, think about some of your earliest childhood memories? That um, was a while back, true, but think about it. Remember one, sometimes you're, the events are, I don't know, just indelibly fixed in your mind. You look, think back to your earliest memories and it's like it happened yesterday. For me, I will never forget when I was seven years old, my first visit to the snake farm in New Bronsville. Anybody ever been to the snake farm in New Bronsville? Of course, Clyde's been there. You probably worked there, didn't you, Clyde? (laughs) The snake farm. Well, they they have huge snakes there. I mean, they have a snake as long as this this stage and, and longer. Uh, gross snakes that are huge. And for a seven-year-old, this is mortifying. Um, But they had huge snakes, they had alligators, they had all kinds of things that you don't normally see um, as a seven-year-old. But the thing that I most remember was a gorilla. They had this massive gorilla in this cage uh, in the corner of of the room. And they had a little peanut you know thing beside him where you can put in a quarter and get a little cup of peanuts and feed the gorilla and so I thought that'd be fun, so I did it. I got my little cup and and the gorilla, as soon as he hears the clicking, click click click, click he knows the drill, and he kind of ambles over and he just sticks his arm out like this. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you actually you actually get to put it in his hand. Oh, this is kind of neat. So, you know, one by one. I didn't give him a whole bunch at a time. It was one by one. And he he put his hand out, and he'd get the peanut, and he'd put it in his mouth, and the hand would go right back out. And, and the gorilla never even looked at me. It was just, you know, hand out, hand to mouth. He knew the drill. And then, of course, I ran out of peanuts, and I thought, well, I'll give him a shell. Well, I give him the shell, And he brings it to his lips and then pulls it and looks at it. And then his eyes kind of, he looked from the shell and then he just kind of looks up at me. (laughs) Well, he gets up and he slowly turns around and walks back to the back of the cage. And then he just lunges and hits that cage and starts rattling it, I mean in full rage. Have you ever seen a seven-year-old boy fly? <laughs> I went from that side of the room to that side of the room without ever touching the ground. It absolutely mortified me. That's probably why I remember that moment as a seven-year-old. But one of the, but one of the things that I've never forgotten, in addition to the terror of him looking at me and lunging, was the, the arm out, arm back, arm out, arm back. <laughs> He knew the drill. And as soon as the peanuts were done, he was in a rage. I've never forgotten that. Jill Caratini said these words, whether an atheist denying the existence of God or a Christian overlooking the blessings of God, the contradiction is as obvious as it is rampant among us. To overlook the good in our lives is to state that there is no one to thank. You know, it's one thing for an ape to hold his hand out with the expectation and to fly into a rage when they don't get their peanut. It's another thing for us to do that in life. To come to God as if His grace is an entitlement. To come to Him with our hand out, and everything's fine as long as He keeps the hand full. But as soon as the moment occurs that From our perspective, he quits providing or he quits giving us whatever it is we're expecting. All of a sudden, things change in our relationship from our perspective and we fly into a rage. Let's look together at Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus 23. We're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark. And actually, I'm just trying to avoid the passage that we'll look at next week because it's so hard on divorce. But actually, that's not true. But I wanted to give a – I wanted to take just a little two-week break on Mark and look at these – a couple of the feasts, a few of the feasts, particularly as they relate to us as Christians, because we look at the Old Testament – particularly Leviticus, and the feasts and a number of the sacrifices, and we just sort of read through it in in an obligation in our annual Bible reading program, and we could almost read through Leviticus with the fan on, you know, just, we fly through it, because after all, I mean, nothing applies. It seems irrelevant. And admittedly, it's a challenge. But the... God's Word, as Paul wrote, um, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Now, some are more profitable than others, but Leviticus is profitable. And one of the reasons that it's so profitable is because even though they were applying it in a specific way in the Old Testament, the principles are timeless. And it's those principles that we want to glean and apply in our lives. And Leviticus 23 we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We looked at starting in verse 4, the feast of the Passover, and in verse 6, unleavened bread. And the feast that comes after that is called the Feast of First Fruits. Let me read, um, before I read the text here from Leviticus, I want to read the words that were written by. Uh, 154 years ago, written by our then President of the United States. Listen to these words. It is the duty of nations, as well as of men, to their own dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. When's the last time you've heard a politician or one of our leaders speak like that? Amazing. Abraham Lincoln, October 3rd, 1863, as he initiated the holiday that we celebrate, called Thanksgiving. But his words are incredibly insightful, because a people that have been blessed, the natural response to that blessing is gratitude. It's not the ape with the handout and things go wrong if God doesn't provide. There's gratitude that He has provided. Look at Leviticus 23, we'll start with verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, we got to take this in context with what came before last week. The first holiday of the year, we read last time, um, is Passover, verse 5, In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then verse 6, on the very next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and for a week the Hebrews would purge the leaven from their lives, basically, and also sin. From their lives, and then this holiday occurred. Now, we read that the celebration of the first fruits took place during that uh, during the week of the feast of unleavened bread. Notice that it says on verse um, well, verse ten: When you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits. And then it says, verse 11, that you shall wave the sheaf before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. So during the feast of uh, unleavened bread, during the whole week in which they wouldn't eat leaven, whenever the Sabbath happened to fall that particular year, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, wherever the, the first fruits occurred during that time, the day after the Sabbath, wherever it fell during that week, well, obviously, the Saturday is when it falls, but I mean wherever the, the feast you know, would rotate throughout that particular week, uh, year to year, wherever it was, whenever the Sabbath happened, you were to take a portion of your barley harvest, the first fruits of it, and bring it to the priest. The first fruits of it, and bring it to the priest. And notice also that it's brought the day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday. Now, if you brought your first sheaf to the priest and he waved it before the Lord, it basically meant several things. That you acknowledge that your harvest came from God. Uh, it, it's not like, as Lincoln said, that it's all because of us, but it's an acknowledgement that it came from God. It meant that you acknowledged that it came from God, that you were giving thanks that God had provided, and you were also trusting that God would continue to provide for the rest of the year. This is the first fruit, so it's the beginning of the year, it's the first that you've gotten for the whole year, and you give it to God. You don't keep it for yourself. Look at verse 12. Now, on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb one year old without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord, for a soothing aroma. With its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine. It's interesting, a drink offering is not really something that's drunk. It's not something you drink, it's something you pour, something you pour out. If anybody drinks it, so to speak, it's the Lord. And these offerings are given to him. Notice it says, verse 12, that the burnt offering is to the Lord. Verse 13, this offering of an ephah, a fine flower, is to the Lord for a soothing aroma. The soothing aroma is basically a, a reference to the fact that from God's perspective, it's pleasing. Sometimes it's called a pleasing aroma or a soothing aroma. It's, uh, in other words, the sacrifice does its job. It satisfies God. It pleases God. It, it's not that He enjoys the smell as much as it, but the aroma represents that it, it is a soothing or a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Um, and notice that the text says, "On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall do these offerings." In other words, on the same day that you do the offerings, you bring in the offering of the first fruit. On the same day that you do all these other offerings, you give thanks. In other words, gratitude is to be a regular part of worship. If you were to take the the timeless principle and lift from that, the Feast of First Fruits represented that you were giving thanks to God for what He's provided. I remember reading about a soldier in World War II who returned to his outfit after having been in the hospital, after having been wounded, he returned to his outfit and he wrote a letter, actually, to George Patton thanking him because ultimately he was the one responsible. Patton had worked hard to make sure that the troops that were um, injured or wounded got excellent care, and this particular soldier wrote Patton to thank him. And Patton actually wrote the man back and said that this soldier's letter was the first letter of thanks that he'd received in all his years in the Army. Thirty-five years, amazing. Uh, Kind of a a humorous anecdote as well, (laughs) the Chicago Daily News said that of the thousands of letters that came to Santa Claus in the months prior to Christmas, after Christmas there was only one card from, from a boy thanking Santa for what he got. Well, that sounds right, isn't it? And, of course, Jesus experienced this as well. When Jesus healed those ten lepers up there between the border of Galilee and Samaria, if you, when you go to Israel, you'll go to a, a valley there called the Harod Valley. It's the same valley of Gideon Spring, uh, right between the hill of Moray and Mount Gilboa. Anyway, and when you, look, when you go there, there's this valley there that's probably the valley that Jesus was walking down when he healed these ten lepers, but only one turned around to give thanks. And I love the way Jesus phrases it. Jesus asks, weren't ten healed? And then literally the text says, but the nine, where? Where are they? Jesus is amazed not that this one man comes back, but that the other nine did not. It's like the gorilla. hand in, hand out, hand in. God's grace becomes an entitlement to us. It's no longer a matter of humility. Um, I love the, um, the sharing that goes on in our, in our class because so, so many of the times when we share about difficulties that we've experienced, and there have been a couple, of, a couple that were shared this morning, the gratitude that's there because of the difficulty, uh, it gives perspective that otherwise we wouldn't have. I'm, I'm grateful for the blockage because of the, of the perspective that it gives. It's not cancer. Uh, the, the gratitude of perspective is something that's essential. There's a tribe in West Africa who has an unusual way of saying thank you. They say literally, my head is in the dirt. Um, some metaphors are just hilarious when you translate them literally, but in order to say thank you, they'll come up to the person that they're thanking, and they'll put their head you know, down in the dirt. And so to say thank you, they'll say, my head is in the dirt. Try that next time, you know. Whenever you go out to lunch today and your server brings you, you know, fills up your water glass, just, just tell him or her, my head is in the dirt. It's not going to have the same effect, but in Africa it meant, I am humble before you. I am grateful before you. Uh, There's another tribe that expresses gratitude by saying, I sit on the ground before you. And what they would do is if there was someone that they were particularly beholding to, they would go and literally sit in front of their hut and just be there for an extended period of time. Just this act of humility, of gratitude for what's been done. You know, we're not necessarily from Africa, but that would be a wonderful exercise for us to do before the Lord, wouldn't it? To just sit quietly in His presence – I mean quietly in His presence – and just give Him thanks. True gratitude comes from a humble person. And if you have trouble being thankful for what God has given you, then it could be that you're having trouble with humility. Look at the next verse, 14. Moses writes, Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread, nor roasted grain, nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places. In other words, this feast of first fruits is one where God eats first. This feast of first fruits is where God is served first, and then the people eat. That's what that's what Moses means when he says, "Until this day, when you bring in this this uh, this barley of the first fruits, you don't eat any of it." You don't eat bread or roasted grain or new growth until you give it to God. God gets it first. Um, I love the uh, – the there's a, a, a rule in Volume 2 of Life's Little Instruction Book. It says, when you carve the Thanksgiving turkey, give the first piece to the person who prepared it. It's a nice thought, isn't it? It's a biblical idea. It's not just true for mom, but it's true for the Lord. By waiting and serving God first, the people demonstrated that the best belonged to Him. It thanked God for His provision. So here's a principle from our text today. Here is a timeless principle we lift from the irrelevant passage in Leviticus and we plop down in our lives and all of a sudden it makes perfect sense for us. And it's simply this, thanking our Lord with a portion of our blessings is an act of faith in his promise to provide. Thanking our Lord with a portion of his blessings is an act of faith in his promise to provide. If you have worked really hard and all of a sudden there's, you bear fruit and then you take it and give it to God, that is an act of faith. If you work really hard in your business or uh, in your home or in whatever it is, whatever is the avenue by which you receive an income. We don't give God the leftovers from that. We give God the first. We give it to Him off the top. As soon as it comes in, we have already predetermined what the Lord's portion is, and we give it to Him, trusting that He will use the rest of that uh, to provide for us. We give God the first fruits. It shows faith. and. It's our way of saying thanks. Now keep your finger here in Leviticus, or you might want to slip a piece of paper there, and move forward to Deuteronomy. And I want to read you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, you probably know, means second law. Duto, we know, means two. And namas means law, so the second law, or the second giving of the law. And it was essential that that Israel get the law for the second time because there was something very important that happened between uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers is called Numbers because they did sens- a censuses. Do you say censai? How do you say it? Censuses. They did two censuses in, in numbers, one at the beginning of the book that counted the nation and then one at the end of the book that counted the nation again. And the reason they did that twice is because something very significant happened in between those two. A whole generation died. And so they gave the law a second time in Deuteronomy to this new generation about to enter the land so that they would learn the lessons that their parents did not learn. And here is the lesson that they were to learn, among many other things. But look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. Moses writes, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from, who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." You know, it's essential when you're living in God's blessing that you remember Who ultimately is the one who provided it for you? It's very easy for us to live in houses maybe that we did build or to um, drink water, as it were, that came about as a result of our own doing, but not ultimately to recognize who's the one that gave us the ability to begin with and the gifts that have allowed us to earn a wage. It's ultimately the Lord. Notice the emphasis that's given here by the repeated phrase, which you did not. The blessing that, that they would receive would come from God's hand and not from their own wits or wisdom. Moses warned his nation that their prosperity, th- that the greatest temptation of prosperity was to forget God. You and I are rich, by the way, um, if you ever wonder if you're wealthy or not, just Go to another country, go to uh, a third world country, do a mission trip or some experience where um, people don't have what you have. I remember the first time I went to Russia, I was there for a couple of weeks and came back. And literally, as I drove into my neighborhood, into our subdivision, I literally said, I am rich because I had been around a context that was so different. You and I have garbage disposals that eat better than much of the world's population. We are very blessed. Prosperity and blessings are ours in abundance, and they tempt us to neglect God. They tempt us to be like that, that gorilla with just this, this feeling of, you know, give me my next peanut as opposed to an attitude of gratitude. Moses says, watch yourself. When you have been blessed as we've been blessed, watch yourself. I remember one day, I was, one Saturday I think it was, it was a weekend for sure, but I was working on my computer and Kathy walked in and saw me working and she said, will you do me a favor? I said, what? She said, close that computer and read a book. And I thought, well, I guess I could do that. So I actually quit working, found a book in a quiet corner of the house – this is after we were empty nesters, of course. Before that, there is no quiet corner of the house <laughs> – and read a book. And the book that I chose to read was a book that we've had on the shelf for a long time It was uh, Anne Voskamp's celebrated book, One Thousand Gifts. And initially, honestly, the book sort of was hard to read. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the the book called uh, Penzance, or I think in French it's Pensee by Pascal. Pascal intended to write a book, sort of an apology, apologetic book, uh, on the Lord and on uh, theology and just the logic of God. But when you read... Uh, ants it's just these these random thoughts. It's almost like reading the book of Proverbs. There's no real feeling of flow. That's because Pascal hadn't put it together yet. They were just his random notes. And they're still so significant that we've published them, and you can benefit from reading them. But that's sort of how I felt by reading Voskamp's book. And this was a published book. I was reading through it and thinking, this, is, this feels like a patchwork quilt. There's too many periods. I mean, Uh, every three or four words was a period. It's very short. And when I read a book, I mean, I usually read the book, just uh, fast read. But I couldn't read that book fast. There's too many periods in it. It was too awkward for a speed read book. It forced me to slow down. And the book is all about recognizing – the the gifts or one thousand gifts is what it's called but basically it's the idea of seeing the gifts that are right in front of you. And Anne basically challenged me, the reader and the readers, to l- make a list of the things around you that you're grateful for. And so she did this with one thousand, um, but I did it in a very simple terms. I only I did a hundred, and I won't read them all to you, but I'll read the first ten. But listen to what what Anne wrote. A lot of significant things, but here's one sentence she wrote that I enjoyed. It says, Every breath is a battle between grudgery and gratitude, and we must keep thanks on the lips so that we can sip from the holy grail of joy. Gratitude and joy go hand in hand. Uh, Several of the blessings I jotted down. Of course, my wife and daughter's. Uh, the love that dogs show, music that inspires worship, the changing seasons, silence of early mornings, Israel trips, fingers to type with, meetings that start on time, Uh, strength to go on when I don't think I can, receiving clear direction. And there are many other things that I could tell you. But there are gifts that God has given that you may not be aware of that are right in front of you. And the book basically challenged you to make, I don't remember if it was 10 or 20 or whatever it was, every day, to make a habit of writing down things you're grateful for. And what that does is not just give you an assignment of writing things down, but it gives you a mindset of looking for them, a mindset of looking for the things in life to be grateful for. This is a renewed mind in our, in our minds that, that's essential. Moses' warning here in Deuteronomy is helpful. It's essential for us, that unless we watch ourselves, we will allow our busy, blessed lives to drift from devotion to Jesus Christ. We will adore our families, we will adore our homes, our jobs, our ministries, our vacations, our retirement, our salvation, all of God's blessings to us. But if we're not careful, we can replace a devotion to the Lord with a devotion to the Lord's blessings. And in a sad, twisted irony, those blessings become our focus instead of the God who gave them. That's what Moses is challenging them, both in Leviticus and here in Deuteronomy, to, to uh, not let that happen. Now, you still got your finger there in Leviticus? Turn back, and I want to show you something real quick. Leviticus, right in the passages we were there, that, the same one we just read, notice in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11. Leviticus twenty-three, eleven, that he waves the sheaf before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. That's Sunday. Verse 12, now on the day when you wave the sheaf, he mentions it again. Verse 14, until this same day, he mentions it again. I bring that out to emphasize the fact that three times in this passage, Moses says, it's on this day that I want you to do it. The day after the Sabbath, on Sunday, which probably felt really weird to a Hebrew, but from our perspective, it begins to make sense. Let me show you why. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Now you can leave Leviticus, we shan't be back. 1 Corinthians 15, giving thanks and giving thankfully. Is the lesson from the Old Testament in relation to first fruits. But the most important connection for us as believers is not only a, an attitude of gratefulness to God, but is also understanding how the first fruits represents Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians 15, look down at verse 19. First Corinthians 15:19. Paul writes, "If we had hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, he's speaking of Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Paul is likening the offering or the feast of first fruits with Jesus's resurrection. And he says that Jesus is the first fruits. Now remember what the first fruits offering was. It represented a trust that if you're giving God the first fruits, that there's more to come. If Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, then that means there's more to come. And the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. But it's not just Christ's resurrection, it's Christ's resurrection first and then ours. Christ is the first fruits, and then ours follows right after that. And just as the first sheaf basically guaranteed the harvest to come, Jesus' resurrection is a promise. It is God's promise that all who believe in him will also be resurrected. That's you and me. In fact, the context of 1 Corinthians 15, if we were to read a little farther on, as Paul writes, draws on this illustration to show that a seed can be buried in the ground, but when it's time for God to bring it forth, it it grows with a more glorious body. It is planted one way, but it rises another way. Jesus used this same uh, illustration in John chapter 12. What's true of literal seeds is also true of Jesus, and it's also true of you and me. You see, the whole reason to bring the first fruits was basically to give God thanks for the beginning of the harvest. They waved their sheaves on Sunday, and Jesus rose on a Sunday. The connection is intentional. They waved their sheaves on Sunday expecting more to come. There's an old hymn, you probably have heard it, sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide till the dewy eve. You know it? Waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping we shall come rejoicing bringing in the sheaves. It's a kind of cheesy melody, but the words are great because it talks about the harvest that's coming. We need to live in hope of that harvest, and that's the second principle, the second timeless truth from the Feast of First Fruits that Paul clearly applies in 1 Corinthians 15, and therefore we know that we can make correct application. And it's this, that Jesus' resurrection and his ascension previews the hope that all believers should live for. What is your hope? What is your one single primary hope? Um, It's got to be more than the weekend. It's got to be more than the trip to Disneyland with the kids or grandkids. It's got to be even more than than a trip to Israel, which is wonderful. Your hope is the rapture. That's your hope. Peter wrote, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Completely. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope. To prepare yourself, to to gird your mind is sort of like what we would say, um, well, in those days, everyone would wear, you know, long garments. And so if you're going to do any work or if you're going to run or if you're going to do anything physical, you would have to pull the the back of your robe up and tuck it in your belt, basically to, you know, to free, free yourself up for work. Uh, From our perspective, we might say we roll up our sleeves. We're getting the garments out of the way so that we can do what we need to do. Peter is saying, do that with your mind. Get everything out of the way and focus. And what are you to focus on? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when you wake up in the morning, you need to be thinking, you know, it could be today. Today, Christ could come back for us. There is nothing prophetically we're waiting for. There's no blood moon, there's no wars and rumors of wars. There's nothing that we're waiting for to happen in the newspaper before Jesus comes. The next thing that we're waiting for is Him coming. There's nothing that we're looking for. We have been in the last days ever since the first century. There's nothing that we're waiting for. Paul expected, potentially that Jesus could in his lifetime uh, by the language that he uses when he writes. So, Jesus' resurrection and ascension, it previews the hope that all believers should live for. The late Glenn Campbell recorded a song that expresses well this hope. Um, you have to listen carefully to it. Lord, we see the timeless truths all throughout the word of god whether it's sacrifices from leviticus or the reminder in deuteronomy or the words of our lord jesus as he talked about a seed that's sown that's that is raised imperishable that uh, or our brother the apostle paul as he wrote to the corinthians all saying the same thing that we We walk through life and we struggle through life dealing and wondering, Lord, have you forgotten us? When the reality is that we need these regular reminders, these daily opportunities to look at the blessings that are right in front of us, to look at the blessing of the resurrection of Christ that gives us the reminder that you haven't forgotten. That though there are many who are uh, planted, as it were, many who have died, and one day our own bodies will lie in the dust. But we have a great confidence because of our Lord Jesus being raised that we too will rise again, that our friends and family with faith in Christ will rise again because Christ rose again. And we have the great hope and the gratitude that we express because of our Lord's resurrection. We have a great hope that he will come to receive us. So strengthen us, Lord, this week, and give us the mindset of expectation as we wake up each day. Today could be the day. He could come today. And let that driving hope and passion give priority to our words, to our actions, to our faithfulness, and especially to our gratitude. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.